So what's your favorite kind of peanut butter? Bro, people who like crunchy are weird. Oh, <laughs> like, they yeah, are yeah, yeah, straight yeah. up weird. Yes. That so, is like... Actually, that's one of the first questions I ask someone if I want to be friends with them. <laughs> is Are you a crunchy or smooth peanut butter person? Because if, if, they okay, if they're a crunchy yeah. per, like crunchy your peanut first, butter... Your first question is pineapple on your pizza or not? Oh, yeah. Okay, but to me, that's not as like defining. Okay. But if you like crunchy peanut butter, I don't know. There's You're... something... Oof, duh. <laughs> what does that say about my mom? She does like crunchy peanut butter. My dad likes crunchy peanut butter. Maybe they're just crunchy peanut butter. I don't, like, yeah. mom's just like, I love that crunch when you like, try <laughs> <laughs> the peanut butter. I was like, no. <laughs> Anyways. Oh, man. Any other peanut butter talk we need to conclude? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's a good segue. Just like we spread peanut butter on toast, mm. we should spread the word of God. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I like that. Is your gospel crunchy or smooth? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Do you have a chunky gospel that's mm. oh, full of junk? Or is it smooth and delicious? Yeah. <laughs> Basically, if you meet anybody who likes crunchy peanut butter, you just be like, so you don't believe in the gospel. Got it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, obviously we're kidding. Um, verse, we're in Ephesians 2. Yes. 11. 11. Mm. So, recap. Um, we covered 8 through 10, right? Yes. And so then we kind of really getting into like salvation and how um, there's like three kind of terms underneath <clears throat> the... Three umbrella of salvation. Mm-hmm. Justification. Three words that define okay. salvation. Sanctification, glorification. Same again. Justification, sanctification, glorification. Good. Yeah. Um, yes. Is there anything you want to go over about that? Questions? Mm-hmm. Not at the moment. Yeah, no. Um. All right. Well, first thing we got to do is pray. So let's do that. Lord, thank you for your word. And we just pray that you would uh, lead us and guide us uh, as we study your word. Um, Reveal to us the truth of your word, the meaning of the text, so that we could properly apply it to the way that we live. I just thank you for these young men who want to be in your word and desire to be in your word. And ultimately because they desire you. So reveal yourself to us uh, through your word um, and pray that we would be drawn to you and want to be closer to you and to know you better so that in doing so we would be sanctified as we draw close to you and you reveal to us our sin and you work out that sin and we work out that sin with fear and trembling. Um, Help us to do that in a way that brings you honor and satisfies us in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Let's let's just read 11 through 22, even though I don't believe we'll get that far. But mm-hmm. we read 11 through 22, and then we've read the rest of the chapter, and we can just go from there. So let's just go around first at a time. Charlie, you can start in 11. All right. 
Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at the time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Uh, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of host, sorry, hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For, th for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. In whom the whole structure being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Okay, so <clears throat> let's just take a step back from the text and look at it from a wide lens view and just see ultimately what is kind of being discussed here. Um, who, there are two different parties involved in this text. There are two groups of people, essentially, that are kind of being discussed. One of the groups is being addressed in this text, and the other group is being, like, uh, talked about, but not talked to. So one, of the, one group is being talked to, and the other group is being talked about. Because the other group, their existence is what validates the group that Paul is writing to. So who is he writing to? The Gentiles? The Gentiles. Yeah. And so who would the other group be? The, the Jews. The Jews. What's a Gentile? Anyone who's not a Jew. Anyone who's not a Jew. So <clears throat> um, the reason that we know the word Gentiles, and it tends to be a, a word that we really only ever see in the Bible, is because this is a book about Jews. <laughs> you know? And like the Jews were are God's people throughout the entire Old Testament or the majority of the Old Testament and the Jews are a significant you know Jesus is Jewish the apostles are Jewish the opponents to Christ are Jewish and the a lot of the early church is Jewish and it's not until really Acts chapter 10 that we see this gospel that is Jewish suddenly become a gospel for Gentiles in the sense that like, you gotta imagine you're a first century Jew, okay? So you're you're an, you're an Ephesian, right? And you go to the church in Ephesus and you get this letter from Paul. What do you know before you read this letter? Well, if you're a first century Jew, you're thinking, um, our Jewish roots go back to Abraham, and <clears throat> God makes a promise and a covenant with Abraham, and then he makes a promise with, you know, uh, 
Moses, and then he makes a promise with David, and he makes, well, I call them promises, but I mean, they're called covenants. So he's making these covenants with his people throughout the Old Testament, and that covenant includes, and ultimately is, that God is making a promise that there will be a Messiah, right? And so these Jews for centuries are really for millennia, for thousands of years, are waiting for this coming Messiah to show up. Well, you're a first century Jew and you hear about Jesus and everyone's saying Jesus is this Messiah. Well, some people believe it, some people don't, right? And there are Jews today who still think they're waiting for the Messiah. So how, what do you think is going to happen when, when John talks to us about the Antichrist in his letters? Mm-hmm. And this Antichrist is going to claim to be, Jesus even talks about um, people claiming to be me. There's going to be those who come claiming to be me. And, and like, you know, what do you think the Jews are going to do? Jews right now who don't believe that Jesus is the they're Messiah. Gonna think, so they're they're going to think, think that, that that's the Messiah. That's the Messiah. Right. Oh. I mean, that's very oh. probable, right? And you can see, I mean, if we were to talk some end time stuff right now, you would be able to see how that makes sense to the way that some of the things go at the end of time. Uh, that the, that the, there would be Jews who fall for this false prophet antichrist um, or fall for uh, antichrists, small a antichrist, the precursors to the one and only antichrist. Um, and John says back in the first century, they were already there. So we know that they're antichrists at work now. Um, and there are Jews who are waiting for a Messiah. And there's going to be a guy who says he's the Messiah and they're going to believe it. Um, at least some of them will. Yikes. And so just like, just imagine you're a first century Jew and you all you know is God, the God of Abraham. Like anybody who's a Jew... Um, is not just a Jew in nationality, but they're a Jew religiously, right? So, like, there's Judaism as a religion, and there's Judaism, and there's Jewish heritage, right? Jewish national nationality, and so first century Jews, for the most part, were Jewish both in blood and in religion, and so they think of Abraham as their father and. They think of the God of Abraham as their God. And then you see Jesus show up on the scene and he meets these Pharisees who are like, we are God's children. Abraham is our father. Would you make yourself equal to Abraham? And Jesus is like, well, you don't know God and you don't know the God of Abraham because you don't know me. And you can't know God the Father unless you know me. And he doesn't just say that. He goes as far in John 8 to say, not only that, but not only is God, the God of Abraham, not your father, Satan is, right? We talked about this mm-hmm. last night, right? Yeah. So that is like a very important reality to understand because the Jews think of the what we call the gospel. The Jewish gospel is... Jewish only, right? So like the Jews are waiting for a Messiah to show up on earth and take over and reign in Jerusalem and lead the people on this earth. Well, Jesus shows up 
and he's none of those things. So the expectations for people grow over all the centuries of waiting for this coming Messiah. They're like, he's going to be a prince. He's going to be a king. He's going to rule. He's going to take over the Romans. The Romans are oppressing us. He's going to conquer the Roman nation. He's going to take his throne in Jerusalem and he's going to rule forever and we're going to be God's people again and we'll get all our land back and we'll get the temple back and we'll get the, our king, who, our Messiah king who will reign on earth and everything will be great and we'll be free from oppression. And Jesus shows up and there, and, and there are men saying, this is the Messiah. And they're like, are you talking about the guy from Bethlehem? Like the guy who who's born in Bethlehem? The, the, the like, And there's even... Um, places in the gospel where uh, the people say, we know his mother and we know his brothers and we know his sisters. And, and are you talking about the carpenter from, from Nazareth? Like, there's no way the guy you're talking about is the Messiah. You're, you're talking about a lowly carpenter who was born in a barn. This is not the prince that's coming to save the world. And people's expectations of the coming Messiah were just... Not biblical, we'll say. Okay, so when Jesus does show up, Jews don't believe. I mean, a lot of Jews, most Jews, well, yeah, most Jews don't believe. And so it isn't until, you know, even when Jesus dies and then resurrects from the grave, right? So he dies, rises from the grave, and then meets with the apostles for 40 days before he ascends back into heaven. After his resurrection, before he ascends to heaven, he's talking to the, to the apostles, and they say, well, when are you going to take your throne? And he's like, you still don't get it. Why don't they get it? What do they not have yet? The Holy Spirit? Yeah. They don't have the Holy Spirit, so they still don't get it. Like, even though they think, like in, in Mark, Jesus asks Peter, who do you think I am? Um, you know, this is before his death, and he says, you're the Christ. So, like, they admit that he's the Messiah. They believe he is who he says he is. They just don't understand the full picture, even after his resurrection. And they're like, when are we going to, you know, take over? And Jesus is like, mm, you don't quite get it. So, and he makes a promise, and John, I think it's John 14, that he's going to um, send his Holy Spirit, the Helper, who's going to teach them what they need to know. Uh, by the Spirit, they're going to write Scripture, and by the Spirit, they're going to know what to say when they face opponents. And we see that all happen in the book of Acts. So in the book of Acts, the first eight chapters, really the first ten chapters, um, it's all about Peter. Like, Peter's kind of the star of the church, right? And Jesus said he'd build his church on Peter, and he does, because Peter and the apostles lead a lot of people to Christ by preaching the gospel. And then, and, and even up to Acts chapter 9, and Acts chapter 9 is all about Paul. Because um, we see Paul get converted in Acts chapter 9, but all the way up to Acts chapter 8. So essentially, from Abraham all the way up to Acts chapter 10, it's all about the Jews. I mean, there's plenty of Gentile, you know, stuff going on, but mm -hmm. this is like 
salvation for the Jews, the Messiah is a Jew, God has selected the Jews, God has made the Jews, God makes promises to the Jews, God makes covenant with the Jews, and he makes a promise of a Jewish Messiah for the Jewish people, and the, and the Jewish Messiah, Jesus, shows up. <clears throat> and then the Jews, after Jesus dies, and resurrects, and ascends to heaven, the Jews go around, go all over, and spread the gospel to who? Jews. Telling Jews to believe in the Jewish Messiah because it's a Jewish gospel. It's just Jews, Jews, Jews. And everything's Jewish, right? And then Jews believe the gospel, get filled with the Spirit in the book of Acts. And the the, the church is like, yeah, this is clearly valid. Like, this gospel is real because it's validated by the works that we see the Holy Spirit doing. The apostles get the Holy Spirit early in Acts and then they go start preaching the gospel. Then they become effective. Once they get the Holy Spirit, then they understand the gospel. Then they understand how things are going to go. And But it, but it's still, at that moment, they still think it's a Jewish gospel. Mm-hmm. So it's for the Jews, for the Jews, for the Jews. And one of the ways they know the gospel is valid is that when the Jews hear the gospel, they speak in tongues. Um, the apostles perform miracles. And they're validating the gospel with these miraculous signs, Right? And then you get to Acts chapter 10. And Peter has a vision. And in his vision, God says, uh, he, he, he brings this sheet down from heaven from the four corners and there's a bunch of animals on it. He says, eat whatever you want. And Peter says, I can't eat that. I, I can't eat what's common. So according to Old Testament law, he couldn't eat what's common. And so Peter's saying, I can't do that, Lord, because the law says I can't eat what's common. And God's like, don't call what I make not common, common. Don't basically saying I have made things special and you're calling them common. And Peter's just trying to follow the law. And what God is really revealing to Peter is, Peter, you are too focused on the Jews. Like, just like you think that you can't eat certain foods because of the law, you think that the Gentiles can't be saved because the gospel's for the Jews. So you need to break out of your shell and break out of your understanding of what I'm trying to do here. Because all throughout the Old Testament, I repeated over and over and over again that all the nations will be blessed through the seed of Abraham, which is whom is Christ, right? Right. And so God has been talking about all the nations being blessed, Gentiles included, since the beginning. But the Jews are in a Jewish gospel. And so Peter has this vision, and God says, don't call common what I don't call common anymore. And what God is really teaching Peter there in Acts 10 is, Peter, you got to break out of the mentality that this gospel is restricted to Jews. Just like you think that the law restricts you from eating certain foods, so you think the law is restricting you from sharing the gospel with Gentiles. And then Peter wakes up, he's like, I don't know what that means. And he, three men knock at his door. And like, hey, our friend Cornelius wants to see you. Cornelius is a Gentile. And he goes... Uh, Peter goes with them. He goes to Cornelius' house. He's like, what do you want? He's like, God showed me a vision. God told me. So Cornelius is telling Peter, God told me to call for you. And and he told me that you would tell me why I'm calling for you. And Peter's like, well, I know why. I just had a vision. God is telling me to tell you the gospel. So Peter shares the gospel with Cornelius. His whole family believes and everyone in his household believes. And they all get filled with the Spirit and start speaking in tongues. 
Now Peter goes back to the church in Jerusalem and reports that to the Jewish to the church in Jerusalem. So these are believers, right? Jesus's half brother James, who writes the book of James, he is the uh, like the head of the church in Jerusalem. So he's kind of like the senior pastor of all senior pastors to the church at this point. Peter is like a clearly significant player, probably the most trusted apostle um, at the time. And so Peter goes to the church in Jerusalem and says, I shared the gospel with the Gentiles and they were filled with the spirit and believed. And the, the, Peter's argument for why it's valid is he says, who would we be to, I'm kind of paraphrasing here, but he essentially says, who would we be to reject the Gentiles who get the gift of God? He's talking about the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Why would, who would we be to reject them getting the gift when we got the gift too? Why would we stand in the way of what God's doing? Mm-hmm. Like God gave us the Holy Spirit. We experienced that. Well, they got the same experience. Why would we say they can't have it if God gave it to us? Who would I to stand in God's way is what Peter says. And the church in Jerusalem is like, Amen. And then for a few chapters, there's this debate over who can be saved. Can Gentiles really receive the gospel? And the church confirms, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And then word gets out that the gospel's for everybody. And then in Acts chapter 9, right before that, God saves Paul, a Saul, right? Mm-hmm. Who becomes Paul. And Paul's, so the timing of that's great because Paul gets saved and then we read about Cornelius getting saved, Gentile. Paul's ministry eventually becomes a ministry specifically to the Gentiles. The Jews get saved through Paul and Gentiles get saved through Peter. But essentially, Paul's ministry is to the Gentiles and Peter's ministry is to the Jews. So in Acts chapter 10, there is a major shift in world history in terms of the gospel. That this gospel message that has mostly been to the Jews, a Jewish gospel and a Jewish covenant and a Jewish promise for the Jewish people God reveals through the power of his Holy Spirit, it's for everybody. So having that understanding is massively important to... Having that understanding is massively important to grasping what Paul talks about here. Mm -hmm. Right? Like if we don't get what the Jews are thinking, then this isn't going to make sense. Because now he's writing this letter to the Gentiles. I mean, there's Jews here too, but like, He's saying specifically in verse 11, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles... So he's talking to the Gentiles specifically. And what he reveals is this idea that they essentially, if we're to back up from Ephesians 2 and look at it, what he's essentially telling the Gentiles is, you don't belong in the body. You don't belong in the family of God like Jews do. But you've been brought into the family of God, which makes you relationally children of God just as much as Abraham is, just as much as Moses is, just as much as David is. You also, Gentiles, are equally in the body or in the, in the family of God. That's, that's his big thing. Then he dissects a little bit of what that means. So that gives you a big picture. Okay. Yeah. Of, of what's going on here. Yeah. Culturally. That's a pretty big picture. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the I mean, historical it's perspective. Yeah. No. Yeah. Yeah. Any questions about that? No. I feel. Yeah. Never mind. Hmm. Nothing. I was just gonna say. I kind of feel a little dumb because obviously I knew what a gentile was, but I just like 
I don't know. I just didn't really put the two pieces together that Enchantado is just not a Jew. Yeah. I um, think a lot of times we kind of just, we've heard a word so much yeah. that you kind of just like read over it. Mm-hmm. But I think to like slow down and be like, what does this actually mean? Or what actually is this word? Or like, right. just, you know. So, yeah, that was helpful. Yeah. yeah. So that's like important to grasp. That whole mm-hmm. big picture is important to grasp as yeah. we walk through this. So, verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Okay, stop. What? I feel like that wording's really <laughs> weird on the uncircumcision. Like, why wouldn't it be like uncircumcised or, like if it's talking about them? Okay, so what do you notice about the words the uncircumcision? They're in quotations. They're in quotations. So <laughs> yeah. he's he's naming them. So he's he's not just calling them the uncircumcised. He's giving them a name, the uncircumcision. Okay. So it's a, like their identification. So what does he mean by calling them the uncircumcision? Um, and then he says, by what is called the circumcision? So if, so who is the uncircumcision? The Gentiles. The Gentiles. Yes. Why are they called the uncircumcision? Because this one's really obvious. The they're uncircumcised. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and so I was thinking so deep. I know. I, like, I said that's. Is, I was oh. too until he said that this is so obvious. Yeah. I thought you were saying like this is so hard, so I like all of a sudden started thinking even more. Yeah. But then he's okay. Yeah. Okay. So they're called the uncircumcised because what is the dis- so in the old covenant mm-hmm. God made a covenant with with Abraham and there was a and when God makes a covenant there's always a sign in the covenant. In the new covenant in Christ, the sign of the covenant is baptism. So there's always a physical sign within a covenant that shows the world essentially and shows everybody that you're a part of this particular covenant. Mm-hmm. So it's some sort of physical sign that reveals your relationship to God in this covenant. Mm-hmm. In the new covenant in Christ, that's baptism. That's why we're commanded to get baptized after we're saved. What was the sign in the old covenant with Abraham? What was the Abrahamic covenant sign? Circumcision. Is- yeah! yeah. <laughs> Let's go! <laughs> I was about to say, this is easy. So, so then, so then who's gets, who's getting circumcised in the Old Testament? The Uh, Jews. The Jews. Jews. So oftentimes you'll see the word circumcision as a reference to Jews, right? So sometimes in scripture, instead of calling them Jews and Gentiles, he'll call them like the circumcised and the uncircumcised. Mm-hmm. He talks a lot about this in Galatians, and he actually calls them the uncircumcised, uh, or I'm sorry, the circumcised. Um, in Galatians 2.8, uh, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. Okay. So that's Paul. Yep. There again, verifying what I was telling you earlier, that Peter's ministry was to the Jews and Paul's ministry was to the Gentiles. But he calls the Jews there the circumcised. And what he's saying to the Gentiles now is, okay, let's think about this Gentiles in terms of human, physical flesh. 
that you were called the uncircumcised. And who called you the uncircumcised? Verse 11. You were called the uncircumcised by... The circumcised. By the circumcised. So who called you the uncircumcised? Jews. Jews. The Jews, yeah. So the Jews called the Gentiles. Why, why would he use those words? He's just saying that it wasn't God who called them that, or... Well, what he's telling them, what he's telling the Gentiles is, the Jews bear the physical sign of being in covenant with God, and you don't. So Gentiles, even the Jews recognize that they're in covenant with God because they're circumcised. And you are not in covenant with God because you're the uncircumcised. Right? And he uses the word flesh in verse 11. And then at the end of verse 11, he uses the word flesh again. And he says, which is made in the flesh by hands. So why does he say that? Is he just clarifying that this is like a physical sign? or Yes, okay. yes. He's clarifying that the circumcision, the physical actual circumcision, is a sign of your relationship in covenant to God mm-hmm. in the old covenant. And what Paul teaches us is that what God does in the new covenant in Christ is he doesn't circumcise us physically. Now there's a circumcision in our heart, Right? So our relationship to God, this is what Paul's essentially telling the Gentiles, your relationship to God now exists because of Christ. So it's a change in your heart. And it's no longer a matter of who's circumcised and who's not circumcised. It's no matter, really what Paul's saying is, it's not by the law that you get saved. We see him repeat that over and over again. Romans chapter 8, he's like, the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. So, like... The Paul's really saying, like, if we're talking about your relationship to God is dependent on whether you're circumcised or not, or, or you're in covenant with God and that's revealed through the sign of the covenant, which is circumcision, that's done by hands and that's done in the flesh. But the gospel is deeper than the body. The gospel isn't about the flesh. And the new covenant in Christ that God made in Christ is no longer... The old covenant that he had in Abraham. It's not about the body anymore. It's not about circumcision. It's not about what your hands do. It's not about what your flesh does. It's about the change that God produces in your heart. It's about the regeneration of your heart by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the new covenant promise that God even makes in the old covenant in Ezekiel 36, 27, when he specifically says, so in Ezekiel 36, 27, you've got an Old Testament text but it's a promise of the new covenant that's going to come in Christ. And he says, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So there's this language about in the new covenant, it's not going to be about the law anymore. It's going to be about your heart. And I'm going to write my law on your heart, meaning I'm going to put my spirit in your heart and he's going to teach you. And so Paul is essentially saying, hey, 
the Jews have always considered you not family members because you're not Jews. So there's a physical disconnect. Gentiles, you can't be part of the family of God because you're not Jews. And now Paul's bringing that to the surface, and then he he doesn't he doesn't make them feel better about it yet. In verse 12, he goes on and he goes, "Remember that you were at that time." So what's that time? Um, like in the past, in the old te- yep. old testament. Yep. Law, Old Covenant. Perfect. Right. At the mm-hmm. time when it mattered whether you were circumcised or not circumcised. He says, at that time, you were, uh, I'm sorry, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Dang, Paul. <laughs> yeah, that's rough. Yeah. So you didn't have a relationship with Christ. You were alienated from God. So even after Christ shows up, you're still Gentiles in the flesh. You're still called the uncircumcised. And you have no relationship with Jesus. You are alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Um, meaning you're like alienated from the benefits of being a Jew. Or as more, more clearly... You are alienated from the blessings of being in God's family. And then he clarifies, and you were strangers to the covenants of promise. So God makes covenants throughout the Old Testament and then makes a new covenant in Christ. And the Gentiles the whole time are not a part of those covenants. They're not receiving the blessing of being in covenant with God because they're Gentiles. And once Christ comes and there's a new covenant... They're not part of the covenant, not just because they're Gentiles, but because they don't believe. I feel like, even though it's wonderful news that now you aren't separated from Christ, it would still be hard to like hear like that they were alienated from God, by God. We'll go to Romans 11 and clear that up, okay? Okay. So, but then he says, because of that, at the end of 12, they had no hope and they were without God in the world. So... That's the bad news. Remember back in earlier in chapter 2, verses 1, 2, and oh, 3? Oh, it was like, we suck, we suck, we oh, suck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, he's, we're like, dead, we're he's dead. like, you're dead, you're dead, you're dead, you're dead, you're dead. Verse 4, but God being rich in mercy. And again, he's saying, you're dead, you're dead, you're dead, you have no hope, and you're without God. Verse 13, but now. So with the same transition in the same mm-hmm. chapter, you've got the bad news, and then you've got Paul say, but... And then he delivers great news. In verse 4, it's, but God being rich in mercy. In verse 13, it's, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, so he's already clarified that they used to be far off, have been brought near by what? The blood of Christ. By the blood of Christ. So what would you say is the blood of Christ? What does that mean? Um, just uh, his crucifixion? Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. His death and his... Like, he's saying this wouldn't have been possible without Jesus dying exactly. on the cross. Exactly. So it is. So now, so you were the called the uncircumcision. And you, and, and you were alienated from, you were separated from Christ. You were alienated from Israel. You were strangers to God's covenant and his promises. You had no hope and you were without God. You're toast. Like, you have no hope. You have nothing to look forward to. You have no salvation. You have no life. You're going to die and go to hell. Mm -hmm. But now in Christ Jesus, you're brought near 
by the death of Christ. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. What's that mean? (laughs) So, like, this is just my first response. So it's like you have the uncircumcised, like the Gentiles, you have Mm -hmm. the circumcised, Mm -hmm. which are the Jews. Mm -hmm. And so he's like, now because of, you know, Christ and the blood, they've like, he's, it's torn down the wall and now they're like together in one under Christ. That's exactly what he's saying, Charlie. (laughs) Bingo. This just like stating like the new covenant? Well, it's, it's not that he's, I mean, it's, it's, it's elemental to the new covenant. So like, but he's not clarifying the new covenant, but he's revealing one of the it's very, part of the New Covenant. Yeah, he, he's revealing one of the very important aspects of the New Covenant, that it includes all nations. Yeah. Right? And and all tribes and all tongues and all people groups and whatever. And so in verses 14 through 16, what he's really doing, what you notice here is he says, for he himself is our peace. So why does he say that? Because he's about to explain to us that there is no peace between the uncircumcised mm-hmm. and the circumcised. Jews and Gentiles don't get along. In fact, there's laws that require that Jews not receive Gentiles into their home. And Gentiles would never receive a Jew into their home. There is hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles. If you were a Jew and a Gentile came to your door and you let them in your house and another Jew saw it, you would be chastised. Yeah. So, So there is hostility between them. And then it says... Verse 14, for he himself is our peace. What what he's hinting at is I'm about to explain to you. <coughs> I'm about to explain to you that the hostility between Jews and Gentiles is about to be fixed. And how's it fixed? He himself, who is our peace, who has made us both. So who's us both? Circumcised and, and uncircumcised. Uncircumcised, circumcised, Jews and Gentiles, has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh, meaning in his death, physically has revealed that he's able to break down the dividing wall of hostility. How does he do it? By abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances. Why? That he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two. So making peace. So what Christ does is he fulfills the requirements of law. So notice how it says that, how does he break down the dividing wall of hostility? How does he create peace between Jews and Gentiles? What stands in the way between Jews and Gentiles? What does this, what does verse 11 say stands in the way? Oh, circumcision? Circumcision stands in the way. And what does circumcision represent here? Salvation? No. In verse, in what verse? 11. Just oh. Jews? No. Uh, oh, it, does... oh, it was. Oh, it was like the physical evidence that they were like God's chosen people. Or who? What tells them to get circumcised? The oh, the law. The law. Oh, the law. Yeah. Right. Oh. Yeah. So, gotcha. so. Okay. So what he does is he breaks down the dividing wall of hostility. So what is what divides? Oh, them? so essentially the law is what's... the law is what divides yeah. them. Okay. Okay. Because the Jews have 
in the law is part of their like covenant relationship with God. So mm -hmm. they abide by the law as a means of staying in covenant with God, and the Gentiles don't have that. So the law is what separates them. And what does Jesus do to the law? He abolishes it. Actually, I'm going to fix that. He doesn't abolish the law. But you're reading verse 15. That's why you said that. Oh. <laughs> and I'm going to and this is tricky. So <laughs> don't don't be upset with yourself because this is very tricky. What does Jesus say in the gospels he did to the law? He said, "I did not come to abolish the law, but to what?" No, I know this. I have it memorized. Okay, listen, listen, listen. I did Like and I come to abolish the law, but to fulfill them? To fulfill the law. Yes. Good job, Evan. Yes. So, so Jesus fulfills the law. What does that mean? Like he, He's completing it? That's what I was going to say. Yeah, exactly. So essentially, he completed the law so that we don't have to? Exactly. Oh, he makes, completed it for so us. That makes more sense. So what yeah. is... So ultimately... If you want to go to heaven, you have to still, to this day, live the law perfectly. But you can't, and I can't, mm -hmm. but Jesus did, right? Mm -hmm. And we get, and by Jesus living the law perfectly, mm -hmm. he, what he says, fulfills the law. And what he means by fulfills the law is he fulfills the requirement of righteousness that the law expects. The law is written as an expectation for you to follow it perfectly. And if you follow it perfectly, you get to be with God forever. Okay? Because that would mean you're perfectly righteous. But none of us can, and none of the Jews could, but Jesus did. And we still can't today, but that's still the requirement. The requirement is perfection. Mm -hmm. The requirement, yeah, is perfection. And when we're justified in Christ, we get his perfection. So the righteousness of Christ that he, that he achieved by perfectly living the law and fulfilling it, mm -hmm. that righteous credit gets, that righteousness gets credited to us, mm -hmm. right? And so our ticket into heaven is the righteousness of Christ that he fulfilled in obeying the law perfectly and having no sin. And, and not just the law, but every aspect of him was perfect. So, mm -hmm. so, uh, Jesus doesn't abolish the law. He fulfills the law. So why then, in verse 15, does Paul say that he breaks down, he says he breaks broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, which we would call the law, by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances. Why would Paul say he's abolishing, he abolished the law of commandments and ordinances if, he, if Jesus himself said, I didn't come to abolish it, but to fulfill it? This is a tough question. Um, I don't expect you guys to get it. Repeat it one more time. So, yeah. <laughs> Jesus breaks down the dividing wall of hostility, okay. which we would say is the law, essentially, right? What, what is the difference between a Jew and a Gentile? It's mm. the law. That's okay. what separates them. Um, and mm. that law is the means by which God keeps his people in covenant. So, the difference is, we've got covenantal Jews and non-covenantal Gentiles, and that law is that dividing line that is their dividing wall of hostility. But Jesus breaks that down by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances, right? Mm -hmm. So why would Paul say that Jesus abolished the law of commandments and ordinances if Jesus says, I didn't abolish them, I fulfilled them? 
because I don't know. That could not be the right answer though. But is it because it's it's not him doing it, it's God doing it through him? No. Is Paul wrong or Jesus wrong? Is it possible that one of these two authors, Jesus saying, I came not to abolish but to fulfill, is Jesus wrong? No. 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 Is When Paul says that Jesus abolished the law of commandments and ordinances, is Paul wrong? No. No. Okay. Well, so they seem to oppose each other, well, they must but neither can about, be wrong. Are they talking about like two different things? Sort of. Just because they're using the same word. So what Paul is describing is Jesus... Paul would agree that Jesus fulfilled the law, but in fulfilling the law, when Jesus says he came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, Jesus is saying, I didn't come to remove the requirement of the law. I came to live out the requirement of the law. And then he did that. Okay. Paul is saying, when Jesus lives out the requirement of the law, we no longer have to live according to the law. And therefore, Jesus has abolished for us the need to live out certain aspects of the law like certain commandments and ordinances, like the sacrifices. Would it be kind of in a similar idea of like how the punishment of sin wasn't taken away completely by Jesus, but Jesus came to fulfill the punishment of, of sin by dying on the cross. That's a that's a. Is it kind of like a, it's it's a different topic, but it it's is. kind of a similar idea. No, that's that's a good thought, Charlie. Because like the yeah. the idea of punishment of sin wasn't like it wasn't like God was like, oh, now you won't get punished for your sins, and like woo, good job. It was like he brought Jesus. To fulfill the punishment of sin. Yes. So it's the same thing with the law. Yes. It wasn't that he took away the law without anything happening. Jesus had to fulfill it to remove it from like our perspective. Yes. Okay. Very similar. That his fulfillment of it removes our requirement of it. Yes. So yeah. in Jesus fulfilling the, the payment for our sin, mm -hmm. it removes our requirement to pay for sin. Yes. By Jesus fulfilling the law... It removes our requirement to fulfill the law. And in doing so, he abolishes for us our necessity. So what's abolished? Jesus didn't abolish the law. What he abolishes is our requirement mm -hmm. to have to act out yeah. the requirements that are in the law, such as the ordinances or mm -hmm. certain commandments, like you have to sacrifice an animal every 12 months and you you know all these mm -hmm. things. And, that's, and, and again, back to what God showed Peter in his vision, that hey Peter, you're trying to live by the law here, and I'm telling you that we're that Christ has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. And so, what Paul is saying is the way Jesus makes peace is by breaking down the dividing wall of hostility, and he does that by essentially fulfilling the law and abolishing our requirement to live out the law. Meaning, what Paul's really saying is, hey Jews, the law is not going to save you. Hey Gentiles, you don't have to become a Jew by law, to be saved, which was a heresy that was going around. That was a common heresy. One of the most common heresies in the early church was what came from Judaizers, which were Jews who said, yes, you can be saved 
through Jesus, but you also have to get circumcised because the law says so. So you can have Jesus, but you also have to obey Moses' law. And Paul addresses that in Galatians and says, no, that's a heresy. That's a false gospel. Mm-hmm. And anyone who believes that false gospel is cursed. That's what Paul says. So, so, and he's essentially saying the same thing here. Not that they're cursed, but he's saying this, this law has been broken down by Christ or fulfilled by Christ broken down, and, and by him fulfilling it, he breaks down the hostility between Jews and Gentiles. And then he goes on and says that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace. So he breaks down the dividing wall of hostility and draws Jews and Gentiles into one family, not in the law anymore, but in Christ. Hmm. Okay. So, and therefore so then makes why peace. do people feel like the law is their god or why why is that do they just not read their bible and know the truth you mean like today yeah like today like why do people and i guess maybe it's as simple as they just don't know scripture but it's just but like still why this seems pretty straightforward right yeah i'm just kind of curious why do people view like the old covenant law as like still valid valid yeah so let's just be clear um i don't know anybody who's not a jew who thinks they have to live according to the law to be saved okay okay what i find most common is that there are Christians, people who claim to be Christians, and, and very well could be Christians, and believe the real gospel and believe that Jesus is their only means of salvation. Mm-hmm. But then once they're saved, they're like, well, I God's, the law that God made in the Old Testament still reveals what he desired for people. Hmm. Like, don't eat pork. Right and don't wear clothes that are mixed materials. You can't have like cotton and polyester together in your clothes and like all these weird, strange laws. Some of them that just so like why would this came into the picture? Because I'd be so like. I mean, there's other reasons too, but like <laughs> yeah. I mean specifically, <laughs> specifically, I like my Nike shirts. Yeah, so. yeah. <laughs> and I like my bacon. I like my bacon. <laughs> so there are Christians or self-proclaimed Christians who want to live according to this Old Testament law, not because they think it saves them or even keeps them saved, but because they think it will please God to do the things that God said in the Old Testament. Like, well, that must still be what God desires. Uh, I know it's not required for salvation anymore, but here's the problem with that. So they do it as like an extra credit type of thing? Yeah, essentially, but they wouldn't say that. The problem with that thinking is that in order to believe that, you have to falsely believe that the law would have ever saved you in the first place. Abraham is the first one that God makes his covenant promise about Christ. Well, that's not true because he makes a covenant promise with Eve and Adam and Eve actually right in Genesis 3. But the Jewish people get their first covenant promise in Abraham. And God makes an, a, a covenant promise to Abraham in, in, in Genesis 15 and says, uh, look at the stars and look at the sand on the, the beach or the stars in the sky. Um, 
they're innumerable. There's too many to count. That is going to be your family. Too many to count. Through you is going to come a seed. So God reveals the the promise of a coming Messiah to Abraham. He doesn't call his, he doesn't he doesn't give Abraham much more information. Abraham doesn't know his name's Jesus. He doesn't know he's going to be born in Bethlehem. He doesn't know that uh, when he's going to be born. He, he doesn't know what we know today. He doesn't know he's going to die on a cross. He doesn't know that he's going to rise from the grave. He doesn't, he doesn't know of what we know. Abraham only knows the little bit of information that God gave him. And he said, I'm making you a promise. Through your seed, all the nations will be blessed. That's all he knows. And... Abraham believes God in Genesis 15 when he makes that promise. And in Genesis 15 it says, And God counted his faith as righteousness. Abraham got saved. How? Through faith. Through faith in what? Righteousness. No, he got righteousness oh. by faith. Oh, in His God? faith in, in what about God? What did God promise him? The Messiah. The Messiah. So his son. So he got so Abraham was saved by faith in the gospel. Now but he didn't even know the details. He didn't know the details, but that's not the point. The point is God made a promise. Well, so that actually answers the question as I was thinking like back like you know, what about the people that weren't alive to hear this? But they still had an opportunity. To have faith in the gospel, even though the gospel story of Jesus dying on the cross hadn't been lived out yet. Right. And so, yeah, exactly. So, and God reveals more and more of the gospel throughout the Old Testament. Yeah. And whatever God has revealed, that people are held accountable to believe in order to be saved. So their faith has to be in whatever God has revealed to them in terms of the gospel. Abraham had a sliver of a picture of the gospel. God believed him saved it's counted to him as righteousness he is saved by faith and every old testament believer is saved by faith in god's promise of the coming messiah which is the gospel now it's a sliver of the gospel we now see but how is that any different than us today because they don't see with their own eyes the gospel they just have to believe god's promise we don't see with our own eyes the gospel. We didn't watch Jesus die on a cross. Mm-hmm. We, we just have to believe that Jesus is who he says he is. We have to believe the word of God. And we have to believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins and rose from the grave. Now, they may not have had, in the Old Testament, the information that he's going to die on a cross. And, but, but, but even later in the Old Testament, those elements are revealed. Yeah. Like in Isaiah. And so... The people of God in the Old Testament are still required to believe whatever God has revealed to them in terms of the gospel. So even in the Old Testament, they're saved by faith, not the law. They're not saved by the law. So a believer today, to think that they need to do the law in order to please God, means that they don't understand that the law was never the means to please God. Faith has always been the means to please God. And he repeats that throughout scripture all the time because God even says in the Old Testament, I don't desire sacrifice. I desire your heart. He wants faith, genuine faith, not just obedience to a law. So any believer today who puts their faith in Christ and then says they want to live the Old Testament law doesn't understand the Old Testament law. Mm -hmm. 
Not only that, but there's this. Galatians 3, 3.10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. No one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. So what are the who what are we justified by? Faith. Faith, not the law. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He endured the curse of the law so we wouldn't have to. Okay? And he says, For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. If you, if you try to adhere yourself to the law, you are entering, willfully entering a curse. This is what exactly what Paul was dealing with with the Galatians. They believe in the gospel of Christ, but they still wanted to try to like, oh, they were hearing this false gospel that was spreading that you have to also be circumcised or you still have to, you know, live according to the law. And Paul's like, you want to live by the law, you're entering the curse because if because what he's saying in Galatians 3.10 is if you decide to live by the law, you have to live the law perfectly. Because if you don't do one element of the law perfectly, then you're cursed by the whole law. James says that. James says that if you do one of the laws wrong, the whole law curses you. So you have to, if you're going to enter the law, you have to do it perfectly. So anybody who's like, well, I know the Old Testament law. I'm a believer in Jesus, but the Old Testament law says I shouldn't eat pork. So I just don't eat pork. I'd be like, well then you also have to follow all the other 613 laws in the Old Testament. And if you don't... So then, so then why is that still part of, our, part of our Bible today? Because the gospel is from Genesis to Revelation. The gospel is not just Jesus. Yeah. I mean, I'm, oh, back up. Whew. The gospel is completely Jesus. Um, the gospel is not just the New Testament version of Jesus. Yeah. The gospel is the whole story of God from the beginning of creation to the well, fall of man that. to the story of the Jews. All of it is elemental. In fact, in 2 Timothy 3, Paul says to Timothy that the Old Testament is enough for you to be saved. There's enough truth about Christ for really? Timothy to know Jesus and be saved. So, like, a book like Leviticus, where it's like, I don't know. It's, so, like, why have, a lot why have the, the book of, Le so the word Leviticus means law, right? Uh -huh. And then Deuteronomy is filled with laws, too, and, and Deuteronomy uh -huh. means second law, uh -huh. um, which really is more of like a repeat of the law. Um, <clears throat> I mean, I guess you can still see the gospel in there, because Absolutely. you can look at it and be like, wow, there's no way. I can uphold this. Totally, dude. Like, first of all, oh, yeah. how can we even grasp the gospel without understanding Jewish history? Yeah. Like, you don't have to understand Jewish history to be saved, to believe in Jesus, mm -hmm. but you have to understand the story, God's entire story through Jewish history to grow. Like, we don't, 
one of the most important aspects of being a believer is that once you believe the gospel, then we have to grow in our depth of understanding the gospel. And we also have to identify what the word gospel even means. Mm-hmm. Because gospel isn't just Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave, died for your sins and rose from the grave, believe in him and you'll be saved. That's not the gospel. That's just part of the gospel. God is the gospel. So the gospel is good news. That's what the word means, good news. Um, it comes from the Latin goad, spell. Goad meaning good, spell meaning news. So good news. And that's where we get the word gospel from goat spell, gospel. And so gospel, that's why we call the gospel the good news. So what's the good news? Well, you just said a second ago when we were reading in Ephesians that Paul shares the bad news, you know, with the Gentiles that we've been separated, um, you know, and alienated from Christ. And then in verse 13, he says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So would that be the good news? I would say this. The good news is in verse 13. I just said verse 13. But you are but you weren't right. Because <laughs> the good news is bigger than what you just said. What's the biggest thing in verse 13? Christ, the, Christ the, Jesus? Christ Jesus. What's the gospel? Christ, Christ Jesus. Jesus. Even bigger than that, if that's possible. God. God is so the it's gospel. Not, so the gospel isn't what God has done for us. It's... God himself. Yes! Yes, Which Charlie. is what... Okay. <laughs> I think... Which I think people put more... Like they... I don't know what the right word is. Prioritize. Emphasis. emphasis in what God has done for us over what... Who? Who who God is. Yes. That's the problem with the gospel today. That's the problem... I shouldn't say... That's not the problem with the gospel. It's the problem with the way the gospel is portrayed. It is incredibly good news yeah, what yeah. God has done for us. And we don't ever want to downplay that. But that can't exist if God is not who he is. And so the emphasis on the word gospel is that it's the good news. And the good news is you get God. That's the good news. Mm -hmm. Well, how do I get God? Through Jesus. Well, what did Jesus do? Died on the cross for your sins and rose from the grave. Mm -hmm. And all you have to do is believe that to get God. That's the good news. Now, in order to understand the good news... You have to understand the whole story. What good is the news that we get God if we don't first understand who we are without God? So in order to understand the gospel, part of the gospel is who we are without God. And to understand who people are without God, you have to read the entire Old Testament and look at the Jews because they're terrible without God. And what's the difference between the Jews in the Old Testament and us today? We have the blood of Christ. We have the blood of Christ, and we have the blood of Christ because of who? God. Specifically. God the Son. More specific. Christ Jesus. Nope. The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. 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 (laughs) Right. right. Yeah. So. Well, I was technically right when I said God. Yeah, you were both right. But but I wanted to clarify, (laughs) what's what's the difference between the, the Old Testament Jews and the New Testament believers is we have the Holy Spirit. 
And, and so when you look at the Old Testament Jews, what you see is God's people operating without God in them. And what do they do? Constantly rebel. Constantly rebel. And that's why in the Old Testament, God makes the new covenant promise to his people. There'll be a day, like Ezekiel 36, 26 or 27, there'll be a day when I change that. When I fix this rebellion by putting myself into you so that I can secure your obedience. Because the Jews without the Holy Spirit cannot be obedient, but believers with the Holy Spirit can be. And if we don't have the Holy Spirit, we can't stay saved or be saved. And so this is all part of God's... And so like you can't grasp the significance of what the gospel is and the work of God without seeing the Old Testament. So knowing the law, knowing how the Jews operated, seeing God's story played out through thousands of years in the Old Testament is essential to seeing what God does in Christ after the Old Testament and in the New Covenant and in the New Testament. And then we get instructions and letters in the New Testament on how the church, which is the new body of Christ mm-hmm. and the new family of God, what how that church or that bride of God the bride of Christ should operate. And so we we have to have the Old Testament. We can we couldn't live without it. Because we don't look at the Old Testament anymore as how we should live our life. We look at the Old Testament now as what what God has rescued us from. So we get we finished verse 15. Let, let's how about this? Let's just finish verse 16, okay, and then we'll be done. And, and, so there's this and. So he makes, so by making the Jew and the Gentile one, united in Christ, he, end of verse 15, he makes peace. Kills the hostility, instead he makes peace. Jews and Gentiles don't have to hate each other anymore. There's now peace between them because they're both in Christ, who is peace, yes. I'm sorry, but can we just like, I know what it means, but can you just can you just quickly tell me what reconcile means again? Okay, so can, let's read verse sixteen first. Okay, and in addition to making peace, might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So reconcile is to um, how would I describe this? Like make restore. Whole. Yeah, re- yeah, like reconciling with whole. someone is yeah. like restoring the relationship. Okay. To make whole. Yeah. To make whole, to yeah. fix, to restore, to um, reconstitute. So he restores us both, Jews and Gentiles. Because, so, yeah. Sorry. but So he's saying reconcile, which means that we already were both to God in one body at one point. Oh, yeah, because reconcile. So is he saying like with Adam and Eve, like before the fall? Yes, he's fixing the sin problem. Okay. So God created the world in perfection. Yes. Man ruined the perfection with sin, and God is reconciling the problem. Right. By creating. So when Adam and Eve sinned, what they did is they created a hostility between man and God. They broke the peace that existed between God and man. And So he's not just talking about Jews and Gentiles, he's talking about like mankind and God, or yeah. is he? Or is he? Because well, it seems like specifically he's talking about like 
believers. Believers and yeah. bringing us together as yeah. you know, so one body. So here's the thing. When Adam and Eve sin, they bring sin into the world, and every person who's born after Adam and Eve is born into a sinful nature. So everybody's in need of reconciliation back to peace with God, mm-hmm. even though those these, us individuals never had peace with God, right? Yes. God had peace with mankind when he created them. Mankind ruined that peace with sin. Mm-hmm. So who does he reconcile? Only believers. So those who aren't believers don't experience reconciliation and are still enemies of God and have no reconciliation and have no peace with God. And we'll have to face the judgment that comes with being at odds with God. Mm-hmm. But, and this is the good news. The good news is, that's not us anymore. Because mm-hmm. we've been reconciled to God in one body through the cross. And that one body, meaning meaning Christ, he's emphasizing the headship of Christ. He's emphasizing the unity of the body of believers that we get in Christ. You, all, Us three are united together in one spirit to God in Jesus Christ. Like the Holy Spirit is of Christ, the spirit of Christ dwells in you and the spirit of Christ dwells in you. The spirit of Christ dwells in me. And so if I'm growing, I'm growing into Christ likeness. If you two are growing, you're growing into Christ likeness. And the more we grow into Christ likeness, the more we, we become like each other. Though distinct in nature and though we're different in personality, and we're different and unique and distinct, we still grow into the same perfection of Christ. So positionally, remember from last week, the already but not yet, positionally we're already equally united into perfection in Christ. But right now, the not yet, we are being sanctified into that perfection. And so unbelievers don't experience this reconciliation because they're still living in the broken the brokenness that Adam and Eve brought into the world. But the blessing and the benefit in the gospel, the good news to us is God has reconciled us through Christ. And in doing so, in one body making us like Christ through the cross or through his death, the cross killed him, but he, through the cross, killed the hostility. So Jesus kills hostility. Jesus kills division. Jesus makes peace by killing hostility, and he kills hostility by being killed. That's a pretty cool gospel. Yeah. Hmm. And then next week we can go into 17 through 22 and see how that really works out. Hmm. Questions? Thoughts, ideas, revelations? Things that you think are cool that you just want to repeat? All of it was cool. I don't know. It was, it was really good. I don't know. My brain's just like... Yeah. It's a lot. Processing. It's a lot. it's a lot of information, right? I need to start like getting better at like taking notes. I would say writing this down. Oh, recording is great. Oh, yeah. That's oh, true. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. Oh, dude. So I can pay it. attention and... Dude, yeah. Well, because like last week, when you're in the treadmill at the gym, like last week, I was yes. able to go back and listen, and it was actually helpful to go back and re-listen because a couple things that I remember hearing, but then listening a second time, I was like, oh, like now it's kind of like Registers. cemented yeah. into my brain. Plus, like so. no, I mean, I think it's very difficult for any human being 
to sit through an hour and a half of Bible teaching and absorb it all. Right. So, and that's okay. And that's why we record it. So you guys can go back, go back and, and listen to it and, and process it. And then like, you know, the, the guys who aren't here can listen to what we discussed too. So that's good. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, and there's, just keep in mind, all that stuff we're talking about, the Old Testament, the Jews, the law, the gospel, how all this stuff works together, we honestly have just kind of just like scratched the surface. Like there's so much more to it. I know. And I just wanted you guys to see the big picture that like what we just did essentially is mm-hmm. we looked at Ephesians 2, 11 through 16 and... Though we left this text, we only left the text to establish context for this text. Mm -hmm. So in order to understand what this text means, you had to first understand the historical context, meaning the Ephesians received this letter and they read these things and they already understand the Jews, the law, the Gentiles, the hostility. They already have the context. They have the context because they're in it. <laughs> yeah. We don't. So we have to go back and discover what is the context for what would what would the readers have known when they're reading this letter. And now you know what the readers would have known. So then you can better understand its meaning. That's why context is so important when we study the Bible. So we did a, a lot of contextual, his, historical context today that helps us understand the gospel even better. So what you got today was we just, I mean, you already believe in the gospel. And what you, we did today is we took that same gospel and we dug a little deeper. We went deeper into the gospel. Now you know more depth of the gospel. And so now that we understand the gospel a little deeper, we get it up here theologically. But the question is, what do I do with this in my life? Like, what's the application of this? Because you guys are already believers, I'm already a believer. We are. I already know. So, so I. We may have just learned some new information today. Mm-hmm. But what does what? What did you? Of what you learned, how does it take application or take practice in your life? I mean, I can think of a couple things. I think one thing that comes to mind is like. You know, we talked about how there was the law and to be saved, to have eternal life, we have to completely follow that law or else we don't get to be with God. You know, and then, but Jesus made a way. So I think just even knowing that in my everyday life, like, I'm, you know, not that I'm, not that I'm going to go and just... Like, oh, now I can sin and do whatever I want because Jesus has got my back. But just not having, like, I don't know, like, fear or doubt. Be like, oh, Charlie, you're not following the law. You're not. Yeah. Kind of these these lies. Yeah. So kind of read, I don't know, it's just nice to read the truth um, and to know it. Like it reaffirms that. Yeah. That. Your obedience isn't what got you here in the first place. Yeah. And it's not it's not what's gonna keep you here. But what's funny is that actually by reading it, by knowing that it wasn't what I've done, it actually gives me a more desire to obey. Yeah. If that makes sense. <laughs> it's like by understanding that yeah. I that didn't seems, obey, yeah. 
gives you the desire to want to obey, which, it's, like, when you think about it, doesn't really make sense logically. But, but it totally makes sense biblically because yes. that's what Jesus demands of people who follow him. Yeah. That is exactly what I was going to say. It, it not only reassures us, but it also, like, it also, in a way, just, like, equips us for, like, apologetics and just, like, well, yeah. defending our faith and stuff like that, too. Yeah, that's true. Yep. Yeah. First Peter well, yeah, three sharing. fifteen tells us to be ready with the defense for what well, we believe. I mean, think about it. Let's say you never know. Let's say next week I have a conversation with someone who's like, "Oh yeah, like I'm trying to follow the law to the best of my ability, so that way I can be with Jesus." Now I might have a better understanding of like, yeah. Well, let me actually. Yeah. Let me tell you about the gas. Yeah. You'd be like, dude, you're just cursing yourself. Well, I don't think I would start <laughs> so, out with that. I would. Well, maybe. But it's, <laughs> it's also cool. Maybe though. I'm more kind. <laughs> it's also cool, like, what you were saying, though, because, like, some people, like, if they didn't have, like, the Holy Spirit in them and they would hear some of this stuff, maybe they would not obey as much. But then, yeah, like you said, it makes us want to obey more. Yeah. It's really cool. And, it, you know, one of the applications is to answer your question from earlier, Charlie, when you asked about why do people try to live the Old Testament law? Mm-hmm. Well, it, it reveals, first of all, the understanding this helps us know how to encourage those people mm-hmm. in the gospel instead of encouraging them in the law. Yeah. And it also validates for us that, like, it prevents us from diving down or going down that road mm-hmm. and diving into the law and thinking oh maybe I should obey the law too and you'd be like no way I've read Ephesians I've read Galatians I'm not following the law the law is not saved me and I'm not going to live by the law because Christ fulfilled it for me so like why do those people do that well maybe they don't believe the true gospel or maybe they do and they're just deceived and confused mm-hmm. and ultimately it's, you know, they're following also, the false gospel. I mean, I also think Satan uses it as a tactic to pressure, like, like you need to follow the law. Yeah, because legalism, yeah. which is a false gospel, yeah. tells you that obedience to God's rules is what saves you. And that's what the Jews, especially in Jesus' time, the Pharisees, were trying to do. And, and Jesus obviously preached a different gospel. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, this is good. Satan Satan knows God's word like probably more than us. Oh yeah. And way more than us. And he knows how to use it. And, yeah. I mean, I think I think he he knows it better than we do. He just doesn't know it the way we do. Right. Yeah. Right, because we have the spirit of God who 1 Corinthians chapter 2 the, the wisdom of God's spirit mm-hmm. knows the mind of God, and that spirit is in us. And mm-hmm. so we have this awesome blessing that even though Satan knows the Bible probably better than us, and he uses it to manipulate us like he tried to do with Jesus when he tempted Jesus in the wilderness, mm-hmm. Jesus just responded with the very thing that the very word of God as well. And so it's important that we know the word of God, which is why we have this Bible study. Because if Satan ever tries to convince you guys to be legalistic and follow the rules and that'll get you, you know, then you'll be pleasing God. You know, you know the word of God. You know that's a lie. You know that's not a gospel you want to follow. You know that your obedience to God is the fruit of your faith in Christ, not the cause. 
right? It's the product of your faith. It's not the cause of your faith. And so your desire to obey is just a desire to please a God who has already saved you, not a desire to stay saved or to please God on your own. Even recognizing that you're not even the one doing the obedience. It's the Holy Spirit who's causing you to obey, Ezekiel 36. And we saw that last week in Ephesians 2.10. God has already prepared these works for you. you we just walk in them. And, the, and what we see in Ezekiel 36 is we aren't even the ones walking in them. The Spirit is causing us to walk according to His commands. Mm -hmm. So this also validates for us the sovereignty of God, not only in our justification, but the sovereignty of God in our sanctification, which gives us great confidence that we can fully depend on God. It also prevents us from like being prideful, too. Like, if God's the one causing us to be obedient, then you have nothing to do about it. You have nothing to, like... Like, even even when you do things to obey God, you can be like, well, thank you. Like, you can praise Him instead of being like, oh, like, look at me. Yeah. You know? Well, Ephesians 2.9. Yeah. This is not your own... Uh, not a result of works. Why? So that no one may boast. No. Right? That's what you're saying. Mm -hmm. Like, we have no boast... Our only boast is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. Our bo I'm boasting my weakness because in my weakness, Christ is strong. So my arrogance, my bo and in Galatians 6, he says, I'll boast only in the cross of Christ. So what do we bo what does Paul boast in when he boasts? He can only boast in two things. He can boast in Christ. And if he has to boast in himself, he's only going to boast in his weakness so that Christ is magnified. So... As Paul boasts in his weakness, the glory of Christ emanates out of him. Meaning, like, he's comfortable being worthless if his worthlessness shows the worth of Christ. So, Paul has two boasts. Christ, and then if he boasts in himself, it's a boast in his inability to be like Christ so that Christ would be magnified. Either way, he's boasting in Christ. So, all pride is destroyed in the gospel. And if that's true, then we should always be humble. But it takes a lifetime to get there, boys. <laughs> so, anything else? Nope. When do you guys want to pray? Yeah, sure, I'll pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you again so much for this time. Thank you for you working through Pastor Barlow and just putting us here at this time and so that we can fellowship with other believers and grow into a deeper and more intimate relationship with you. I just ask that we can just exercise this in our everyday lives and that you would just make it more aware to me and everyone else in our lives and I just pray that we can have a wonderful rest of our week and glorify you in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Amen.